Hey there, welcome to the Faces of Marketing podcast, where we talk about the human stories and lives of different people and perspectives in the marketing profession and movement makers. This is your host, Ryan Buchanan, and I'm here with my good friend, Lou Raja, who is founder and owner of Be More, Give More, which is a platform for management teams to find success and significance. Welcome to the show, Lou. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here, Ryan. It's awesome. Great. Well, Lou, I also am super psyched for this interview. Um, you know, every time we do these two-hour breakfasts uh, where I'm your guest in your house, uh, I always walk away with these like profound insights on the secrets of life. So, uh, so hopefully the audience and I will get some of that in this uh, nice little 45-minute rap session. Are you kidding me? I'm pumped. The uh, feeling is beyond mutual. I think uh, having watched you from afar, uh, your work here at Eroy, but more importantly, your Eli work, uh, it's, just, it's just awesome. So you're a quality individual. And so the opportunity for me to come here and exchange a few nuggets with you is, is awesome. So I'm ready. Let's go. Uh, it's going to be fun. Cool. Um, all right. So I always start this with starting at the very beginning. Um, and actually, you just reminded me before we started this that you're Born in Boston, you're a Patriots fan, but then you move back to Congo and grew up until you're 17 in Lubumbashi, Congo, right? Yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah. So just give me a sense of what it was like. Grow, I, you know, when memories started to form at three or four years old, like kind of what was that like? Right. Um, my life is pretty much a, a zigzag story, right? My father came to United States in 1967 with the help of Presbyterian missionaries. So he left the Congo to the College of Worcester in the middle of Ohio, right? Uh, liberal Arts College. My mom, the smarter of the two, she got a scholarship in 68 that took her from Congo to Vassar College in New York. Now, these two didn't even know each other in the Congo. So mind you, you know, here they find themselves in the U.S. in the late 60s. Uh, because my mom came with a group of Congolese people that included one of my dad's cousins. So my dad's cousins gets on a Greyhound bus, goes from New York to Worcester, brags about this foxy lady back in New York. <laughs> <laughs> and so my dad decides to go visit him, and that's how they met. So uh, these two folks met here. 1970, my father finishes college at Worcester. They go back home. They get married. They have my two older sisters, Esther and Sengu. And then they come back to the U.S. for their advanced degrees. Now they're in Boston. My dad is at UMass. My mom is at Boston State College. My older brother's born, and then I'm born. So by birth, my brother and I are the two Americans in a family of Congolese. So, so I'm born in Boston, and less than a year after I'm born, we all move back to the Congo. So I grew up in the Congo uh, as an American. <laughs> That's the funny part, right? So um, until I was 17 years, 17 years old. And uh, growing up in the Congo, man, it's, it's amazing. It's the best and the worst uh, put in together. I mean, as a kid, you know, you grow up um, playing outside. Uh, you never wanted the sun to go down. Uh, because electricity um, wasn't always guaranteed. So it was always dark, you know, inside the house, candles or little lamps. So we always wanted to play. The minute the sun came up, we're out the door, all the way till the sun come down. So I was just, just playing outside. And then um, and just just dealing with all kinds of customs and respecting your elders, the importance of family, all of those anchoring type of, uh, of values. And, uh, and your sure. dad was this respected university professor and kind of like a leader in the community, right? Absolutely. Still is. Um, I mean, he's a psychologist, unfortunate for me <laughs> and my siblings. He picks you apart. Man, we couldn't get away with anything, man. This dude. Um, and so it, uh, it, was, it was great to watch him early on. In fact, that's where I got all my inspiration, my uh, motivation to do what I do. Because at age seven, I... Um, I messed up this finger here. I had a little accident, and they had to put stitches. Okay. 
And uh, so then they took me to the University of Kisangani, where my father was teaching. And it was the first time I saw him in his element, right? So if you can imagine the seven-year-old brain looking at my father on one side and about 800 students on the other side. It was like a, like a stadium type of... Uh, huge. Huge. Yeah. And... And I don't know what they're doing, right? But I'm like, oh, my God, this guy is cool. There has to be some kind of transfer of value that's happening. And I couldn't quite understand what was going on. But it left such an impression on me. I was like, wow, I want to be like my dad, right? And, uh, but just to, to go on the other side, when it comes to my mom, um, unfortunately, she passed away uh, when I was four years old. That's 1980. And so I never really got to know her uh, or, you know, see for myself all these great things that I've heard about her. So she inspires me in a different way um, because, um, you know, I want to make her proud in case she's watching down on me. Right. Uh, but my father has been the center, the cent central figure when it comes to my life. That's awesome. And so. So you've got two older sisters and a brother and what, like the age span and were they, I know like athletics was a big part of your childhood and all of that. Were, were they into the same things? Well, my two sisters, uh, the oldest, um, they were um, not too much into sports, but my older brother and I, it's soccer. I mean, this is Congo, right? Soccer is religion. It's it's life. We see anything that's round, and we want to kick it. <laughs> whether it's an orange, whether it's a you know lime, whether it's uh, an avocado. I mean, you name it. Anything that's round. What about mango? I know mango's your thing. Ooh. You eat that. Oh my gosh, that's. I mean, I, mangoes. That's serious business. I absolutely love mangoes. Uh, in fact. <laughs> See, Ryan, when, when you grow up uh, with food insecurity, right, when you're hungry practically every day for 17 years, and, but for four months out of the year, okay, for four months out of the year, the heavens will open up, right? <laughs> and it will be mango season. And I would just grab my knife and disappear into the trees and just gorge like, we're talking hibernation, a bear, right? <laughs> and so I would be up there for hours. My brothers would be up there for hours. And so, yeah, between soccer, playing outside, and climbing mango trees, life was good, man. Life was good. Can't complain. Cool. So um, so when, when an adult would come up to you at, like, let's say 10 or 12 years old and say, Lou, what do you want to be when you grow up? Would would you say, well, I want to be a professor like my dad, or like what, or I want to be whatever famous soccer player was in the con? Like, what was that answer? Right. Uh, first of all, this is this is a great contrast between America and the Congo or Africa. Right. That question. I was we- gonna, I was gonna preface it, but I was gonna be, I was like, well, is that too assumptive to assume that the cultures were that different? I don't yeah. know. It's crazy because, in fact, I noticed that, right? Because that's such an American question, right? What do you want to be when you grow up? Because this is the land of dreams, right? So people get excited about uh, possibilities and what what someone's vision is, right? Back home, I'm sorry, it was just survival, man. Nobody, I mean, it was like, are you going to be here tomorrow, (laughs) right? I mean, it's a... it wasn't something that was part of everyday conversation. Um, so you just you just work to prepare yourself for success. In other words, it was all about getting good grades and going to school, and then whatever happens, happens, right? It was all, it was all about being a person of integrity and character. It was all about. Uh, respecting your elders, it was all about working together because you know interdependence was something that was uh, 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 just ingrained in us from the beginning. I mean, that's survival, right? So that's those are the things that we worked on, and so being a good person and and and, and studying uh, would give you the chance, right? Will just increase the odds of you having a good life, but a clear vision of what you know, you want to be when you grow up, that wasn't a main question. But for me, though, Ryan, it was cool because watching my father 
connect with people and, and being this professor and, and adding value, I always wanted to be a teacher or an orator, someone that will work so hard on myself so that I can have value for others the way my father did. Right. So that that was clear yep. in terms of the big umbrella. Why? But I didn't really know exactly how I was going to do that. That that part was still fuzzy and unclear. OK, so I'm trying to um, figure out like the cultural. I'm fascinated. I love international travel. I, yeah, you've had we've had these conversations where my five week trip to Tanzania and Kenya yeah. when I was. 15 changed my life and um but it i'm i'm really curious uh of what so 12 year old school kids did everyone go to school i know you, you know you created your a school yeah. and because there was this dream that people would have a better education and things like that but i just like what what is the the normative or the normal experience for kids and like why would you create that school and what's what is growing up as a 10 12 year old like in the congo well um education is a privilege not a right um when you live in a country where the average income is less than two dollars a day and you pay for everything from kindergarten to your PhD, right? So those who go to school are those who can afford to go to school. And so when you have uh, parents in poverty making tough decisions like, do I feed my kids or do I send them to school? These are tough questions. So currently we have a country of about 71 million people and yet we have 9 million kids that cannot go to school. Right. So you can imagine how uh, you, you I was always aware of that, how lucky we were to be going to school because, you know, we wear these uniforms. Right. Like blue shorts and, and, and the ladies will have blue skirts and then we'll have like a white shirt. And, and so you can tell walking around who's a student and who's not. So right. to walk around a, a, and see just a sea of students with, with their uniforms, and then to also see an even bigger number of kids that do not have on uniforms during school hours. That was always a, a tough thing to see because you couldn't, you couldn't ignore that reality that this opportunity was not given to others. And so that's why it was a no-brainer when we were in a position to be of some help, building a school was automatic because the way we say it back home when you take the elevator to the top, always send it back down for someone else. And so that was our way to democratize opportunity for others. That's awesome. That's awesome. All right. So I'm, I'm going back and forth in time here. Um, going back to I really want everyone to hear your when you first fell in love with or, or even discovered who Michael Jordan was. Uh, <laughs> <Yes>. And, you know. <laughs> For me, he was my hero. I had a poster on the wall of like the the classic Jumpman, you know, pose and all that. Yes. And you have a picture in your senior yearbook. Yes, uh, in Ashland. Yeah, in Ashland, Oregon, with that same just like ah, <laughs> oh, just crushing it with a dunk. But yeah, tell tell us about when you first discovered this this insanely beautiful athlete, Michael right. Jordan. Yeah, right. So. Um, we we uh, grew up, you know, in, in with with very uh, modest uh, means, and so uh, it wasn't until 1992 that we got an actual color TV and a VCR. Okay, Ryan, that was like winning the lottery, game changer, right game there. changer. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so before that, all these years, we just had this little small. <laughs> black and white television that will be on eh, when you're lucky. <laughs> so anyway, that was a big step up, right? So I had a few of my friends who uh, they've had, you know, a better life and they've had, you know, access to things and, and they would exchange VCR tapes at school. And of course, I couldn't be part of it until that moment when we actually had a VCR and, uh, and a color TV. So I went in. And I was just begging them to give me any 
any VHS tape. It didn't matter. I just, just the fact that I could watch a movie or something inside my house was the most amazing thing ever. And so they gave me two v, uh, VHS tapes. First one was MTV Jams, right? Now you can imagine. I'm in the Congo. It's 92. And I put this uh, tape in and... Bobby Brown comes up, uh, Naughty by Nature comes up, uh, uh, Durant Durant comes Arrested up. Arrested Development. Arrested Development. You have uh, Aerosmith, you know, Jenny's got a gun, yeah. right? All of that stuff, right? And so I'm consuming everything because I'm thinking, wow, this is America. It's really cool, pop culture, you name it. But the second tape, Ryan, the Game Changer tape was... 1991, Game 5, the Bulls against the Lakers in L.A. So uh, Jordan and his team is wearing all red, and they're playing against Magic Johnson. And I was just captivated, mesmerized to watch this guy, number 23, flying all over. And I told my dad, the hell with soccer. I'm done. I'm done with soccer. I want to play basketball. And so I begged him to, you know, just give me a basketball. He gave me a, I don't know, a cheaper version of a real basketball. But it was good enough. And I just became obsessed with basketball. And uh, my grades went down a little bit. And uh, so then he had to, you know, uh, confiscate that to, you know, incentivize me to actually do the work. But since then, it's just been basketball so that was 92 and then 94 you moved to no 93 oh 93 next year to like this like (laughs) oregon and ashland oregon of all places of all places my man a black dude in ashland oregon (laughs) i was like what is going on culture shock man but seriously though ashland was a beautiful place uh my junior and senior year and the reason we went to ashland is because my uh, my American grandparents, if you will, these were my dad's host parents in 67 in Worcester, Ohio. They had long since retired and they were living in Ashland and they were the people we knew. So Ashland was our destination where we came. The Presbyterian yes, minister. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I got it. Okay. So it was, it was great. We went to Ashland and then, um, so it was literally a year into basketball. Now I'm going into a high school and they speak English and I've never seen anything like it, all the things and access that high school students have and I'm playing organized sport. Um, and so it was just hitting the ground ground running and, and trying, to, trying to do well in school, trying to adapt to the culture and also play ball. And so I had a great time my junior and senior year. And so your primary languages are they Swahili and French and English or like uh, what French okay. Swahili Lingala Chiluba and Kikongo these are the languages that I grew up speaking in the Congo but of course in Ashland it's all about Shakespeare so <laughs> I had to learn English in the when I when I came here uh, so it was fun I mean the thing about it Ryan you know this it's it's about immersion once you're in a culture and you don't have a choice right, yeah. and 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 all of those other languages are useless right. then you just kind of your brain goes into this other mode man yeah. where you just become obsessed because you don't want something like language to be a barrier between you and success yeah that's amazing that's awesome so that's actually a great segue um, as you know, my daughter's 13 and 16, and I'm starting to do a lot of touring of colleges and things yeah. like that with her, um, and really getting her to think through SAT versus, a, you know, all of the, there's a lot of pressure, and mm-hmm. that's a very American thing, but I would imagine with a dad as a university professor, uh, you were starting, you started thinking about college, you know, right, right. when you got to Ashland, Oregon, and what was that process like, and how did you, because you ultimately graduated from Portland State University, right? Absolutely. How, how, is, how did you make that decision and, and decide what to do? Right. Um, again, education being so, so important, and my dad being in that field all of his life, um, I knew college was the expectation, no question there. Uh, uh, but of course, adapting to the American system, learning English, and SAT exams. I didn't know what the heck that was, right? To to take these tests and uh, uh, and even the format of the ex- uh, of the test was just completely different. Anyway, um, after I graduated from high school, this is ninety five. 
I went to the College of Worcester to follow my parents' footsteps. Um, so now here I am where my dad was in the late 60s and even where my mom visited, right? So it was very special uh, for me to be there. It's a great liberal arts college. Uh, but, you know, I was for the first time just on my own. And it felt a little lonely. Um, uh, Worcester, Ohio is a small Amish town. I mean, not much was going on there. And a so, six foot four right. black man from Congo in America, like in an Amish town. Right, right. Yeah. But, you know, great, great liberal arts college. So I wasn't really um, thriving, if you, if you want to put it that way. But my sisters, um, both graduated from Southern Oregon University in Ashland, they had moved to Portland. So I came to visit them one summer in 98. I was like, uh, I'm not going back to Ohio. I'm sorry. I love Portland. So I fell in love with Portland and uh, decided to uh, transfer at Portland State University and uh, loved it. Um, finished in uh, international studies, uh, wanted to understand global issues. Africa was my regional focus. So we looked at everything from trade, um, economic development, leadership, conflict resolution, um, you name it. Because I wanted to see how do you influence people at a large scale. And that was the only major that kind of gave me a glimpse of that because my life has been very international. And so that was a, a no-brainer. And uh, that's why I did it, which is great. So if I look at your high school and college um, experience, there was a lot of independence that you had mm. and like major shifts that you had to adapt to. Yeah. To ultimately, I mean, kind of give you the confidence that you could do anything. Mm -hmm. And I wonder what if you had to pick one life event in that or maybe even going back to yeah. if you were four years old and, and mm -hmm. your mother dying like that like what what do you think that life event was that like was either so brutally hard that you overcame that or just uh or so confidence building yeah that it created a platform to for for you to in, have that internal conversation of like Oh, it makes sense that I'm CEO of this yeah. amazing company, um, you know, impacting a, a bunch of lives because of what happened, you know, earlier in life. Absolutely. Uh, it's a combination of things. I, I always say this. Africa gave me my roots and America gave me my wings. Um, and that that's just the anchoring of who I am. Right. So my father, my grandparents back home my culture in the Congo really instilled so much confidence and also joy of living because life is so fragile where I'm from. And so you really appreciate every day. You're very grateful. You wake up every morning like, uh-oh, I got one more chance at this, right? So it's exciting. It's absolutely exciting. That gives you a joie de vivre. In other words, you're just full of life, right? So that was a gift. Then coming to America, are you kidding me? This is the land of opportunities, right? You don't come here for a job. You come here for a dream. So I already knew that because my parents went, uh, went to school here. So that was always in the back of my mind as to how do I stretch? How do I become more than, than I've been? Now, my mom passing early had a huge impact, right? I mean, she was 29 years young. And so that's a number one reminder that tomorrow is not guaranteed, right? Make the best of every opportunity you have, right? When life is so fragile. Um, there's a quote I heard later in life that said, the tragedy of life is not that, we, that it ends so soon, but instead it's that we wait too long to start living, right? So that, that's a huge plus early in my life to understand the importance of getting going, if you will. That was one. And then in high school, this is 1992, Ryan. Uh, this was my biggest failure. Um, after years of trying, I finally got into this school, which was a really prestigious, difficult to get in, very expensive uh, school. It was like our little mini Harvard in the Congo, if you want to call and it that. That was in Lubumbashi? In Lubumbashi, Congo. Okay. I finally got in after tests and tests because, you know, you, it was just tough. And if you 
fail even one class, you start the whole year over, right? So it was very rigorous. And so last day, fast forward, last day of school, when you walk in to go find out whether or not you passed um, and everything in blue means you did well. And if you see anything red on your report card, that means you failed the class. It's pretty much the end of the world. And so I get my report card and at first glance, it looks like the ocean, right? So it's all blue and I'm just about to celebrate. And I do like a, a second take and trigonometry, I failed that class, which meant everything that I did was for none. And I got to tell you, Ryan, knowing how my father, um, um, how little money he made and how um, expensive that school was, I felt like I let him down. I felt like I let my whole family down. And I must have cried for a couple hours straight walking back about an hour and a half from the place of school all the way to our house. And it was just literally the worst day of my life until that point. Um, and now I'm waiting for my dad. My dad is going to come home around 7. And so I'm dreading him coming through the doors and giving him the bad news. And sure enough, he shows up. And, you know, I, I walk up to him. My head is down. I'm still in tears. And, and, I, and I say, you know, hey, dad, we, we didn't do it. Interesting. I said we. <laughs> you know, that's a survival. <laughs> Well, you're using his his um, what tools, communication tools right. of we right. versus I, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so, uh, and I'm just just you know ready to receive any kind of punishment that will come from it. And you know, he's a psychologist. He completely threw me a curveball, which I did not expect. And he says, "What are we going to do about it?" And I was not expecting that question. And I sat there, um, and I said. I'll be ready. I'll be ready next time. And I got to tell you, Ryan, from that moment, which was the lowest of lowest, um, I literally became obsessed. Now, I don't know if pain and hurt are really the key to success in life, but it's pretty close because I did not want to feel that way ever again. And I just went completely opposite. I was so obsessed with success. I read everything. I studied. I walked around. I mean, you know, I had mentors. I just went gangbusters and set all sorts of school records that are still standing today in Lubumbashi, Congo. But that came from pain. But after I did that, I thought, whoa, whoa, if I can do this, what else is possible, right? So my level of confidence went through the roof. Uh, in fact, that has been one of my challenges because, you know, it's not something you can just duplicate on command if you don't have the pain and the hurt that comes with it, right? Yeah. But uh, that really gave me confidence. And then when we finally got a chance to come to America, I was like, okay, this is it. This is it. This is the wing factory, right? Wings, right, are, are, are made here. Dreams are made here. So that, that also gave me a, a, an impetus for even more action. So the zigzag between the two continents and being in a place like this where you come for your dreams, not for your jobs, this, is, uh, this, has, been, this has been it. That's awesome. And I remember you telling me what you read um, was like f a fascination with how leaders live their lives and the, and the qualities of everything from Abe Lincoln to yep. Gandhi to... Um, uh, Nelson Mandela, yeah. Desmond Tutu, you name it. All of that. And yeah. so so that's a segue to kind of the origin story of Be More, Give More. You yes. graduate from PSU. You maybe do a couple jobs. You're yep. at um, African American Health Coalition. You're, yep. you're, you know, you, and then you're like, I'm going to do my own thing. Like, tell, tell us about that. Yeah. Um, I've known my why since I was about 11 or 12, but I never had the courage to actually go all in, right? And so in that regard, I was afraid. Um, and uh, my why was always about adding value in the lives of others. Um, so when I finally decided to jump, which is November 23rd, 2006, 
that was the day, November 23rd, 2006, where I walked into my boss office and said, I'm done. I'm done. It's time for me to finally uh, do this. Uh, I've, I've waited long enough. And mind you, at the time, I'm just getting married. We're just starting a family. So it's terrible timing, <laughs> absolutely terrible timing. But I knew it was time to live life at the intersection of success and significance. Um, this is really where Be More, Give More came from, right? The idea of success is you and me taking the elevator to the top, right? It's about us accomplishing and closing the gap between where we are and where we could be. That's all about potential. So whether it's a company, whether it's an individual, everyone has a gap to close, right? There's always that that frustrating gap between where you are and where you want to be. And so that's that's an endless pursuit. And that's where success comes from. But as you know, you cannot find meaning and purpose just on that alone. Meaning and purpose comes when you help others. <laughs> meaning and purpose comes when you can use your success to influence and build a school or start a uh, internship program or, you know, that's where real meaning and significance comes. So both are incredibly important together. I learned very early on that success without significance feels empty, right? You meet people who've made millions of dollars, have mansions, but they feel empty because it's always been about them. Now, on the other hand, significance without success is not sustainable, I mean, you can love the world all you want. If you don't have resources to back it up, you're not really going to move the needle. So yeah. both are incredibly important. So I wanted to create a hybrid model that combines success and significance because success gives us that sense of accomplishments, pride, we can do anything, and significance gives us a chance of meaning and purpose. So I decided to just start my own business and my own nonprofit. So the school and, and Edu Congo, that's all about significance. It's about helping others, sending the elevator back down. The business, which is also very people-focused anyway, it's leadership training, consulting, coaching, and that's the be more, give more combination. And I feel like uh, that gives me both. And uh, that, that intersection is really what it's all about. And specifically, you are starting to help more like full management teams of companies yes. to kind of uh, be their better selves. Like how, like, how do you describe what you do? Absolutely. Um, okay. Humanity's greatest challenge, or I would even say greatest tragedy, right, is unrealized potential unrealized potential. You can be in China, Guatemala, Congo, Portland, Oregon. It doesn't matter. Unrealized potential is the number one issue on an individual level, as well as a company level, team level, you name it. And the best tool we have to solve that problem is leadership. The best tool we have is leadership, self-leadership, leading others, leading change, leading through crisis, developing other leaders, and leading together. These are the tools that we actually can use to start closing that gap. So, of course, what do you see? You see CEOs, VPs, managers, uh, supervisors, all trying to figure out how to get their employees engaged, how to increase the bottom line, how to develop a great culture, how to wow customers, you name it. There's all these challenges. And then we also have those tools to help with those challenges. So I started uh, working with companies uh, at a consulting level, um, working with CEO and executives at a one-on-one -on -one coaching level, and then uh, changing employee culture, uh, increased engagement, uh, develop leaders who can actually look at it from two ways. Not only keeping the business thriving, this is about higher performance and things of that nature. Second, to really be the kind of leaders that people want to follow, right? You cannot teach what you don't know and you cannot lead where you won't go. So the idea is how do you internalize these principles so they're not just tactical, they're part of who you are. So that's what I get to do, right? Yeah, that's it's what amazing. I get to do. <laughs> so there's, and there, I think a lot of CEOs, when they think about having a coach, 
they think, oh, does a coach have my expertise in my industry? Yeah. Or is this a coach that's going to help me from like a HR culture perspective? Mm-hmm. Or is this a coach who's like run a 80 person, you know, company like mine? Mm-hmm. And so like, wh- how do you, because this podcast is called Faces of Marketing, how do yeah. you differentiate from other coaches right. out there? And then my next question is going to be like, you are so gifted with relationships. Do you find yourself more selling or do you have a strategy for kind of the content that you create in and content marketing? Is that your, so yeah, those two things, differentiation and then, and, and some of your best tools for marketing. Right. Um, being people centered is everything to me. In fact, when, when, when God was giving out skills to people, I showed up on people day <laughs> and that's the only thing I know how to be is human. That's literally the only thing. That's my strength zone, right? And I know this from not only experience, uh, but also studies. As a CEO or as a leader, your company's growth will not exceed your own. So the number one job is if a leader really wants their company to grow, they have to grow. So, because their company will not go past their level of growth. I just had this conversation (laughs) with my small group of entrepreneurs that we Mm -hmm. went to Central Oregon. And the way that I had this, basically the same epiphany that you're talking about, but being a tiny bit more specific is um, the level of self-awareness that a CEO the capacity for that self-awareness to grow is the limiting factor to how much the company can, like the company's going to cap out at yes. where the CEO's capacity caps out. Absolutely. And, and they have a lid, <laughs> whether self-imposed or externally, there is a lid. And my job, literally, Ryan, my job is to be a lid remover, right? That's my job because the minute... Uh, whether that happens one-on-one or sometimes it's with an executive team, um, is to remove that lid because they have to understand the parallel between their growth and their company growth. That's where the one-on-one coaching, uh, the executive coaching comes uh, comes in handy. Second piece of that is just having a thinking partner, having an accountability partner, having someone that will evaluate your growth quarter to quarter. It's a huge benefit. I have my own coach. I have my own mentors who are helping me do that, right? <laughs> how, how do you measure personal growth? How is that possible? Right, right. Uh, the thing is, it's very bottom up, right? So when you first connect with someone, it's all about assessing uh, their strength, their weaknesses, and then contrasting that to their goals, right? Whether or not these goals are realistic based on their bandwidth and capacity, or this is just something that's aspirational. Once we establish both what you have in your toolbox and then we put it next to your actual company goals, individual goals, we can see how realistic that gap is. And then we're going to reverse engineer to what we're going to do quarter to quarter because I believe life business is one 90 days at a time, right? A year is really four years in one. If you can manage 90 days, if you can manage three months and be successful and evaluate in that, you have a better chance to not only duplicate and grow from there, right? And so for me is uh, you, you meet a lot of CEOs with a lot of different goals. Well, I want to make sure my, uh, my employees are happy. I want to make sure that we increase by 20%. I want to make sure that uh, we, we hire more people. I will basically look at look through all of their goals and see the one thing i don't know if you read that book the one thing by uh, gary keller uh the guy who started keller williams uh it's a fantastic book that says here's a the thesis of it what is the one thing that if you did well would make everything else easier or irrelevant <laughs> right and so ceos or team leaders they have to understand Yes, they have a lot on their plate, but there's only a few critical activities that really move the needle. And until we identify that, 
they can get busy all day and not be productive. So I try to help CEOs, leaders, uh, managers to understand what really matters. What are the critical few things that they can do every day? It could be one-on-one with their team. It could be uh, uh, making sure that they're always in touch with the client. It could be evaluating their process day-to-day, right? Those are the things that really move the needle. In my own business, for instance, uh, lead generation is my number one thing. That's my number one thing. And I How do you that. do that? Well, lead generation is everything because when – you're building your pipeline when you're getting customers, uh, when you're looking at your uh, past uh, clients, those are warm leads, right? You want to make sure your pipeline is always full. So what I do is this. I get three islands of focus in one day. What is an island of focus? An island of focus is basically 90 minutes uninterrupted. And then you take a break because according to brain studies, the, we can operate at an optimal level for about 90 minutes before we need a break. And so if you can get two of those before lunch, that's amazing, right? So you do 90 days, so your phone is off, your email is off, it doesn't even matter anybody else's agenda, you're focusing on your lead generation in my instance, right? Which is calling prospects, uh, saying thank you, um, uh, sending out emails, you name it, right? There's a whole list and using software to make it easy and systematize it. Then you take a quick break. You do it again, and then it's lunchtime. Those two 90-minute islands of focus make you super productive. And then after that, after lunch, sure, you can check your emails, respond to a few crises here and there. You might even call someone just for fun. And then you do one more island of focus in the afternoon. Mind you, Ryan, that's only four and a half hours. Four and a half hours in one day when focused is way more than what you see most people do, which is just do a whole bunch of tasks all day and they don't really move the needle, right? So I, I like focus, which has been incredibly helpful in my business once I identified that lead generation was my number one thing. And so I like, I like to help uh, leaders, um, uh, teams to focus on those critical few activities versus all of the things that take up their time. For instance, when you open your email uh, in the morning, that has nothing to do with your agenda. I don't know why people do that. They open their emails, and now it's everybody else's agenda on your inbox, and you have to respond to it. You have to react to it. The hell with it. Start with your agenda, then get back to people. <laughs> and we talked about this at breakfast a few weeks ago, but Miracle Morning, have you heard of that? Yes, yeah. yes. Like this whole notion of he carves out an hour, but mm-hmm. like for me, it's more like 20 minutes in the morning of, uh, the way that I do it is yoga and then basically meditate, you know, just really get clear with yep. meditation and that, I don't know, something like studies have shown that 90 plus percent of leaders practice this, like yeah. practice components of this. So meditation being one little exercise, visualization, journaling, that those sort of things. But that to your point, like we practice distraction in yes. American culture. Yes. Um, and that doesn't help with personal growth. Absolutely. Basically. Yeah. And there's also the power of routine. Uh, we all have to have a routine. You know, it's like, don't start the day until you have it finished, right? And the idea is, why even wake up if you don't really know what you're going to do on your routine level? In other words, the night before, you should already have a clear plan of what's going to happen the next morning so that when you wake up, it's not, oh, what do I have to do today? You wake up following your routine. As you mentioned, meditating, um, exercising, having a, a good meal within the first hour to you know, jumpstart your metabolism. I mean, you name it. Read something positive. Not the news. <laughs> Read something positive that will engage you. And then that start alone can, can, can make a world of a difference you know, because you still have to deal with what? Traffic and coming into the office and dealing with people that may not have had their coffee, right? And so all of that, you got to be prepared for. Yeah. So as a leader, if you don't have your routine that sets you up for success, then the world will take over. Because, I mean, you know this, we live by default or we live by design, right? 
if you're not intentional about the design part, then the default takes over. You know, that's just that's just life. And nine out of ten times, you won't like the default side. You probably want the design, the design side. That's right. That's All right, it. I got two last questions left, and one of this one's gonna be this one's easy for everybody else, but for you, it's gonna be hard because you are inspired by so many people. But if yes. you had to pick right now in this moment, like who is inspiring you? Um, who would you say that is? Uh, personally, would be my father. Uh, my father is 76 years old. I get to see him this Christmas. I'm going to go back home. Um, and because he's always been that, that, that compass, uh, my vision, um, he's the guy that has my back no matter what. Um, he's inspired me to do everything that I'm doing. Uh, and then, you know, we're so lucky that he's healthy um, and uh, that you want to spend as much time as you possibly can with him and uh, gain his wisdom and love and uh, perspective in life. So I can never get enough of that. So he's my constant uh, inspiration. The second are my two boys. Uh, my wife and I were super lucky. Uh, my wife is a first grade teacher, Stacy, and uh, we have two boys, a 10-year-old, Yenga, and a 5-year-old uh, who's crazy, who needs Jesus. But anyway, uh, <laughs> uh, but anyway, we love him. We love him. Uh, and those two, um, they inspire me to be a better person and leave something for them. And so be an example the same way my father was to me or is to me. Now, my biggest highlight, I mean, people ask me about accomplishments and school and businesses and all that, uh, it, 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 it doesn't even compare. When my son was in third grade, okay, he's in fifth grade now, so two years ago, yeah. I was invited to speak at his class, right? Oh. When, when, when they have, like, career day, Oh, my God. I'm sure you overthought that like a mofo. <laughs> I, I was so nervous. Now I speak in front of thousands of yeah, people. I know. But, but that was hands down the most important 15 minutes. I know. You, I'm sure you prepared for like a month. Absolutely. Like, yeah. Absolutely. And to have my son say that he was proud of, he was proud of me. Uh, that's it, man. That's, that's, that's why we do what we do. So I would, I would definitely, uh, put my father and our two boys, uh, almost like in a bookend kind of a way. Um, um, you know, my two boys are following us and I'm following my father. So I'm kind of in the middle of these two forces, right? Uh, one, it's about, uh, uh, legacy and the other one is about the future. So it's pretty cool. That was such a beautiful answer. I think we just and my last question is is more of a kind of the surprise factor of like what's what would we not know about you that that would just kind of um it kind of gets back to the question of um of that of those meaningful life moments but is there anything that you haven't shared with us so far that is just like that kind of came up as through this conversation or before that that the audience might might not know about kind of your you know your motivations your why like what what's you know what's made you or what's coming up for you yeah uh pain uh pain my uh two years ago I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro uh, with a few of my friends, uh, and it was a life, life bucket type of um, thing. And I got to tell you, Ryan, you know, nineteen thousand feet, three hundred forty-one, it's is miserable. Um, is absolutely miserable, and uh, <laughs> hurts so good, or just right. hurts and hurts and hurts. There's no right. good part of it. Um, uh, the most miserable 19 minutes of my life were at the top of Africa. Uh, the peak is called Uhuru, which is Swahili for freedom. Freedom means everything to me because um, it hasn't come so easy for my family, uh, 
my ancestors and colonialism and slavery and so on and so on. And so freedom has been a guiding post, something that even through my business and through my um, uh, nonprofit work, it's always about helping people uh, you know, remove those lids, uh, live the highest and truest selves, right? And so the reason I want that is because it's been lacking in my own personal life, right? I've, my grandfather took his own life. Uh, my father worked so hard getting peanuts in terms of uh, 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 his compensation for years, all to give people value, right? And so in my own life, um, I've had a lot of pain that comes from that. That's my motivation too, right? To to uh, do that on my own so that I can actually have something to help others find find freedom, find find who they really are at the end of the day. And that's the first one, freedom. The second one uh, that's incredibly difficult has been kind of an identity crisis, right? Uh, as great as it is to li- to have a well-rounded life, to travel everywhere and and you also feel like you don't belong sometimes, right? And so, you know, you 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 go back home, you're kind of like that American guy, even though in the Congo, that's really your home. And then I'm here in the U.S., I'm also not fully an American, right? And so sometimes you feel, you feel like, uh, you feel like you, you don't belong. And that, that also creates a sense of, uh, anxiety and pain, right? And so I flipped it. I flipped it. And I used Ubuntu. Ubuntu, the Zulu word from South Africa that speaks to the essence of being human. Uh, that's really why I like that common humanity. I like that uh, unbreakable umbilical cord that ties all of us as human beings because in that regard, we're all family, Right. In that regard, it doesn't matter if you're white, black, uh, Asian, Latino, if you're a man or woman, so-called able, so-called disabled, uh, short, uh, tall. It, it doesn't matter. Right. You are human. That's the only thing that matters. So I've embraced that even more. But that also comes from the pain of feeling a little bit uh, like an outsider uh, in different places. Right. So I was like, OK. All right, what unites us? Let me focus on what unites us. And this is where Ubuntu and our common humanity uh, really helped me. So I would say between the the quest for freedom and our common humanity, those would be kind of like the two, uh, you know, mostly unknown things about me. <laughs> well, you you are gifted with being one of the most inclusive people I've ever Thank met you. and uh, and warm and inviting. And, um, Appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, the more we get to know each other, the closer our friendship gets. And so, uh, you delivered on the promise of some of the <laughs> secrets of life, Lou. You I did appreciate it. it. You did I appreciate it. it. Thank you, man. The opportunity to hang out with you, and uh, I, I mean, like I said in the beginning, um, uh, we're kindred spirit. Uh, you're just a, a brother from another mother. <laughs> <laughs> So it's all love. It's all love. Uh, Thanks, It's all love, Ryan. All right. Appreciate it. All right. Later.